This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. Hey, I'm Don Wildman. And on American History Hit, my expert guests and I journey across the nation and through the years to uncover the stories that have made the United States. From first flight to first ladies, from stitching the star-spangled banner to striking gold in California, to shooting for the moon with Apollo, we've got you covered. Catch new episodes of American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit, every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. In Our Time is on its annual break and we'll be back on BBC Radio 4 and BBC Sounds on the 14th of September. Until then, each week we're offering an episode from our archive of nearly 1,000 programmes, which I hope you'll enjoy. Have a good summer. Hello, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, 1906-1945, was a Lutheran theologian who stood up to Hitler as he threatened to destroy the core of the German church. The Nazis imposed anti-Semitic rules on their approved Protestant church, disgusting Bonhoeffer, as at the very least this denied the Jewishness of Jesus. He helped set up a breakaway church to keep Christian values alive until the Nazis fell. Bonhoeffer was executed for conspiring to kill Hitler, but not before setting up his ideas in writing. And with these and his example, he became, according to at least one of my guests, the most important theologian of the 20th century. With me to discuss... The ideas and life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer are Stephen Plant, Dean and Runcie Fellow at Trinity Hall at the University of Cambridge, Eleanor McLaughlin, Lecturer in Theology and Ethics at the University of Winchester and Lecturer in Ethics at Regent's Park College at the University of Oxford, and Tom Greggs, Marshal Chair of Divinity at the University of Aberdeen. Stephen Plant, what do we need to know about Bonhoeffer's childhood? He was born in 1906 in uh, Breslau, which in, then was in Silesia in eastern Germany. Uh, which is now Wroclaw in Poland. His father was a professor of psychiatry at the university, and Bonhoeffer, with his twin sister, were children number six and seven of eight, so a large family. Uh, and like most middle-class families, a family with um, a lively cultural, social hinterland, sport, music, and so on. In 1912, the family moved to Berlin, and that's where Bonhoeffer grew up, his father had been appointed Professor of Psychiatry in Berlin, which was the most prestigious chair in, in the country, and also ran uh, of another prestigious institution, an institution called the Charité, which was a, a neurology clinic, which brought the family, amongst other things, some foreign income, which insulated them to a certain extent from the troubles that were to follow. Um, happy childhood, happy family, uh, a family which gave him, as he put it later, uh, ground under his feet, a set of values to work with and have at least as much to do with explaining the stance he later took as do his theological views. And you got a very thorough, good German education at the time. Uh, extremely thorough. Um, most of his brothers uh, went into the law or into engineering um, uh, and his decision to study theology looked a bit out of kilter with his brothers, for which he was somewhat teased. But he nevertheless persisted, as he? Yeah, and he decided that at quite a young age that he wanted to do that. And that, that itself was rather strange, because the family didn't have particularly strong Christian connections. Um, the children were all baptised, and their mother, who was called um, Paula von Hasse, was the daughter of a clergyman, and said prayers with them uh, most nights. Um, but 
when they had um, big events like a baptism, a relative came and did it in their house. The, the family, like many middle-class Germans in Berlin at the time, uh, were church members, but rather looked down on the church. It seemed to them to be um, a bit dead, a bit uninteresting, um, lacking in colour and intelligence. So they, they had a, took a, low, a dim view of it, really. And so his decision to become a theologian was... I suspect, you know, something of a way of making himself stand out from his brothers. He became a Protestant. Uh, how significant is that at the time? And what did he join to become a Protestant? Well, the church situation in Germany uh, in the first half of the second century is one which most English people find pretty difficult to get hold of. So let me try and explain it a little bit. Um, there are basically three sorts of church in Germany in uh, the beginning of the second, uh, the beginning of the twentieth century. There's the Catholic Church, which is mainly in the south, which has a strong national leadership. There are so-called free churches, which are things like the Methodist Church, um, the Mennonites, the Baptists, um, which, for the purposes of our conversation today, um, are pretty irrelevant to this story. They don't come into the rubric of what was happening in a church struggle. And then there were twenty-eight regional Protestant churches. In Germany, and these varied in character and kind quite substantially. Some had a few thousand members and covered a whole city, just a single city like Hamburg. Others, like the church to which um, Bonhoeffer, in which Bonhoeffer became a pastor, had something like 20 million members, the old Prussian Union, which covered the whole of the old Prussian kingdom. Um, and uh, that church was complicated even further because, though we typically call him a Lutheran theologian, the old Prussian Union. Um, had been formed in 1817 by King Friedrich Wilhelm III as a united church of both Reformed and Lutheran. So he's actually a, a Protestant in both traditions, though, as we'll hear, I suspect uh, he, he gave most of his attention theologically to Luther. And to put it into the mix, perhaps to disturb it too much, <coughs> after the First World War, there was an intense secularisation grew in Germany, is that right? The Weimar Constitution in 1919 essentially disestablished the church and that left all the Protestant churches in Germany looking for an identity, looking for a sense of what their purpose was in German society. They had supported the war and the popular disillusionment with the empire um, transferred to the church which had backed the war effort and the church looked even more out of sorts than it had before the war. Thank you. Alan McLaughlin, um, because of his status in, in inside Germany, he had enough money to travel, which was quite rare. He went to Rome, he came to London. Uh, but let's talk about when he went to New York in his 20s. What impact did that have on him? It had a very big impact. So he spent a year studying at Union Theological Seminary in New York. Um, the social impact that that had on him was that he became quickly integrated into the Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem. And he made that connection through a friend at the seminary called Frank Fisher, who was an African-American. And Bonhoeffer really at this time has his first contact with people who are being marginalised by society and oppressed by the society that surrounds them. And he spent a lot of time getting to know the African-American community in Harlem, spending time in their homes, working at the youth club that the church ran, things like that, so that he became very involved with that community. And this will have a great impact on him, particularly when he comes back to Germany and sees the Jews in Germany becoming marginalised and oppressed. So it's his first coming into contact with that sort of situation. 
Um, so, in, in, because he sees the blacks in Harlem being marginalised and oppressed and shut outside white dominating society, and he finds a similar thing when he goes mm-hmm, back to Germany. Mm-hmm. He's also, one might say, become, becomes enraptured with spiritual songs and takes a lot of records back to Germany. Absolutely, which he subsequently plays to his somewhat bemused students at the seminary that he's later going to, going to run. Um, another encounter that he makes in New York which will end up being very important for his later thought, is he meets a French pacifist called Jean Lasserre. And this person will introduce the idea that you can't be a Christian and a nationalist at the same time. Those things are not compatible. And that's because if you're a nationalist, you're somehow putting yourself in a superior position or you're willing to try to dominate people from another nation who might also be Christians. And for Lasserre, your your participation in the church and Christianity has to come first over and above your participation in your life of the nation. And so this idea that you can't be a nationalist and a Christian will be embedded in Bonhoeffer's thought at this point. And he came to London. What, if any, influence did that have on him? He actually lived in London for two years between 1933 and 35. He came to be the pastor of two expatriate German congregations in London. And his one impact was that he dealt with a lot of people who were fleeing Germany and coming into England to seek refuge. So lots of German refugees in his parishes dealt with this influx of people. So that was, again... Um, something that he was later to experience in the other direction, if you like. He was helping people flee Germany to London later on in his life. But he also made some crucial contacts while in London. Particularly important is his contact with Bishop George Bell of Chichester, who's going to be a lifelong friend and a lifelong ally, both in the church struggle, which I think we'll hear a bit more about later, but also in Bonhoeffer's later life, during the war, Bishop Bell will be a key contact for him. Thank you. Tom Greggs, um, Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran. Uh, what were the tenets of that belief, and was Lutheranism uh, on the rise at that time? How significant was it? So it's difficult really for us to begin to estimate the extent to which Luther had huge impact upon the shaping of modernity. Uh, Luther, as I'm sure everybody knows, was the proto-reformer, the first person that protested against what he understood to be the excesses of medieval Roman Catholicism, wanting to strip back the Christian faith to its central tenets trying to remove ideas like indulgences and purgatory, particularly concerned with issues to do with hierarchy, the utilisation of the state by the church. Um, The central tenets of Lutheranism really rested on a a range of solas, um, these uh, phrases that are utilised in Latin uh, that come to summarise the central tenets of Lutheran belief, the idea of sola scriptura, that the only authority that the church has rests upon the Bible, only on scripture, the idea of solus Christus, that all of the Christian faith has to be based upon Jesus Christ, uh, that it is only through grace, sola gratia, that we can come to receive the benefits of Christ and we receive that sola fide uh, only through faith. Um, Furthermore, that all that the church does has to be only to the glory of God and not to the glory of human beings. So part of the way in which this works itself out is a separation to some degree between um, state and 
church an idea of two kingdoms with different authorities, one which has a spiritual authority and one which has a secular authority. And Bonhoeffer took all of that on, did he? And he acted out of that, out of those conditions of belief. Yeah, I mean, as Stephen has said, Bonhoeffer does grow up in a context where the church is uniting, where other reformed thinkers such as Calvin and Zwingli and Busser all are making their influences as well. Uh, uh, but Bonhoeffer certainly interacts seriously with the Lutheran tradition that forms him. I, I guess I would want to think of Bonhoeffer as a modern Lutheran as well. He doesn't appropriate this in a simply scholastic way. He thinks about it critically. He thinks about it constructively. What does that lead him to think and do? Um, it leads him, I guess, to engage with the tradition that he's inherited for the context in which he lives, a context where he prophetically speaks of a world come of age, a world where we can't presume that people are religious anymore. It also leads him to form some of his ethical opinions in light of this two kingdoms doctrine and to question, therefore, what we do when we have a situation where there is a tyrant interfering with the kingdom of the church, interfering with the spiritual kingdom, extending the authority that the... Um, Führer has in that context over the church. He was a scholar, he got two degrees and so on, <clears throat> but can we discuss his uh, the influence that Bath had on him? Yeah, so Karl Barth is probably the most significant thinker since the Reformation. Um, he is somebody who wrote a huge amount of theological material uh, and somebody who was outspoken against what he saw to be the excesses of the coalescence of the state uh, and the church, particularly around the justification of the Great War, of the First World War. Bart uh, utilises a, a form of theology called dialectic theology, where he thinks about the way in which uh, God says no to the world, stands in judgment on the world, and judges our religiosity. I mean, for, to my mind, the thing that Bonhoeffer inherits more than anything else from Bart is the idea that the critique of religion that's offered in the 19th century by people like Feuerbach and Nietzsche and Freud actually provides significant theological resources in reminding the church that we don't deal with religion and innate religiosity, but instead we deal with uh, Jesus Christ, who is a contradiction to religion in many ways, who lives a life which doesn't seem to exist in absolute continuity with religiosity or the idea of spiritual space or anything like that. So there's a great deal of thinking going on, uh, Simon Plant, at the time about a diminishing and increasingly marginal and feeling marginalised church. And can we cut to the setting up of the, of the confessing church in which Bonhoeffer played a part and it was with him until the end of his life? In 1933, January, end of January 1933, um, President Hindenburg appoints Adolf Hitler as Reich Chancellor and an immediate policy goal for the Nazis was to conform all parts of German society to the Nazi party programme. Um, youth organisations, schools, um, walking groups, musical groups, everything had to be brought somehow under the aegis of the party and conformed to its goals and character. And that was true to the church. Hitler had grown up a Catholic and had a very clear sense, um, not least because of the church's struggle with Bismarck in the 19th century, the Catholic Church's struggle with Bismarck in the 19th century, late 19th century, uh, Hitler had a very clear sense that that needed to be resolved and moved with uh, tremendous efficiency, actually, to to agree with the Catholic Church um, uh, something called the Reich Concordat, which had the effect of neutering 
Catholic opposition. Prior to the Reich Concordat, the Catholic Church had banned Catholics from becoming members of the Nazi Party. Thereafter, they legalised it. And crucially for Hitler, it removed the Catholic Centre Party, which was the only electoral obstacle still in his way. So the Catholic Party was taken off the table, the Catholic Church taken off the table as a source of um, difficulty for Nazis. In North Germany, however, where the Protestant churches were strong, he had a sense that he had to do something, but his knowledge of the Protestant churches was, was almost um, non-existent. He didn't even know that there were 28 of them. He thought that there was a single national church like there was in the, term, in the Catholic uh, sense. Um, fortunately for Hitler, he had someone who volunteered himself to take on the role um, as his personal representative and to deal with the Protestant problem. And the proposal on the table was basically that the state should uh, take away all 28 churches and form a single national church. By churches, church. you mean, we don't mean buildings, we mean... No, we mean these 28, well, they're called Landeskirchen sure. in Germany, 28 regional churches, some of which have um, maybe 100 congregations, one of which has several, you know, meant some of which, like in Prussia, had many, many thousands, um, to take them, uh, to conform them to, into a single national church and to have a Reich bishop like the Zerich Führer, a single leader for the state, there would be a single leader for the Protestant churches, a united Protestant church in Germany. Now, this immediately set alarm bells ringing for a minority of Christians in the Protestant churches who, because of Luther's theology, had a clear sense that the state had a responsibility in relation to the church but couldn't take it over and make it an organ of the state. And a conflict developed in which basically two church parties arose. One group was called the German Christians and they tended to be sympathetic to the Nazis and another group was the Confessing Church and the Confessing Church initially had quite a lot of support so they had the Pastors Emergency League which was a sort of early incarnation of it had something like 7,000 pastors which is about a third of the total in Germany um, and they raised funds to support pastors who'd lost their jobs because they were Jewish for example and, they, and people who'd been expelled from their livings, they raised funds to support their families and eventually this morphed into um, a parallel church structure and the confessing church didn't think of itself as a new church they asserted that they were the same church but were remaining loyal to the principles of loyalty to Jesus Christ first and above all can you tell us about the importance of the Aryan paragraph? So the state introduced civil service reform, which said that you had to prove you had four German grandparents if you were to hold a civil service position, while clergy were paid by the state and were civil servants. And so the question popped up into the mind of the church, should we introduce the Aryan paragraph for pastors? That's to say, make sure that all our pastors can show and demonstrate by baptismal records that they have four Aryan baptised grandparents. And that was one of two issues that were really at stake in the church struggle. The other was the interference or running of the church by the state. That was a big issue, probably the bigger issue of the two, actually. But the Aryan paragraph was one on which Bonhoeffer was particularly fixed. By no means all people in the confessing church thought that, that separating Jews from the church was a bad idea. But Bonhoeffer did. And he insisted that if the Aryan paragraph were implemented, an emergency state would immediately arise in which the church was justified in resisting the Nazi state. Hey, I'm Don Wildman. 
And on American History Hit, my expert guests and I journey across the nation and through the years to uncover the stories that have made the United States. From first flight to first ladies, from stitching the star-spangled banner to striking gold in California, to shooting for the moon with Apollo. We've got you covered. Catch new episodes of American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit, every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Can we we take further his relationship with the Confessing Church? What did he actually do? So Bonhoeffer was instrumental in writing what was called the Bethel Confession. This is the first document put together by the people that Stephen has just described as becoming the Confessing Church. Bonhoeffer was one of the two authors of the first draft of this document. And the document served to articulate the Christian doctrines on which this group was relying and to contrast these doctrines with the sort of political spin that was being put on the doctrines by the German Christians. So to take an example, one of the theologians in the ranks of the German Christians was saying that the cross of Christ, in fact, simply symbolises the prioritisation of the public good over the good of the individual. So that's all we see in the cross of Christ. But in the Bethel Confession, the authors want to make clear that in Christian terms, the cross of Christ means a lot more than simply a public, a political slogan. So this document was co-authored by Bonhoeffer and one other person, but later was edited to such an extent that he no longer wanted to put his name to it. But that's his first participation in the formation of the articulation of the theology of the confessing church. He'll continue to have a long connection with the confessing church and he'll be defending it in the arena of European ecumenicalism as well. How relevant or important did the confessing church seem to Hitler and his henchmen? I think where things begin to shift is as the confessing church increasingly begins to articulate opposition. Once you get into a situation which we described before where the state has overstepped the bounds of its authority, interfering with uh, freedom of conscience, with the capacity for people to um, form churches, defining Christian identity not in relation to the confession of faith, which is a core tenet of Lutheranism, but instead based upon issues to do with ethnicity. So um, the ethnicity that one has within Germany at this time trumps the faith or even the baptism that one's gone through. At that point, things begin to shift. And then in 1938, this comes to a bit of a head. Um, While there have been quiet rumblings um, against the confessing church, there'd been an illegal seminary that Bonhoeffer was the head of in Finkenwalder, um, which had been set up and the Gestapo had variously tried to close this. But it comes to a head in 1938 when Hitler desires an oath of personal allegiance for his 49th birthday present from all pastors within Germany. And at that point, the rubber starts to hit the road because people are having actively to make a decision now to overtly oppose Hitler by not taking this oath of allegiance. And Bonhoeffer does uh, take that oath. Um, this is one of those places where the the history is a little bit vague. He doesn't take the doesn't take the oath, and he goes into a situation, therefore, uh, as a result of that, of facing conscription into the army. It's a real nadir for the confessing church at this point. It's a real dark point. 
but he manages to avoid this situation uh, by reaching out, in fact, ironically, to the military intelligence unit, the ABVA, where there was already, uh, a, that Bonhoeffer knew about through his brother and his brothers-in-law, some degree of opposition. And through his involvement in that, he was able not to take the oath and not to be conscripted at the same time. So he continued uh, being banned from public speaking, being banned at times from Berlin, from publishing, all of these sorts of things, but managed to get away with it because of um, his involvement with the military intelligence. So he's ducking and weaving in a very, in an extremely difficult situation. We, the, can you briefly tell us, um, what was his thinking about Christ? Gosh, I mean, Christ marks the centre of all that Bonhoeffer thinks and does. Uh, in some ways, he is the most Christocentric, the most um, Christ-centred theologian, perhaps, of the 20th century. What's remarkable about the way in which Bonhoeffer thinks about Christ is that he doesn't want to prioritise the kind of traditional scholastic metaphysical accounts of who Jesus is, how we account for Jesus as one person in two natures, the hypostatic union of God and man in the one person of Jesus Christ. It's not to say that he doesn't believe that, but he wants to start with who Jesus is as a person uh, and, and what, therefore, that person commands of those who follow him, what it means to be a disciple of this person, rather than following some vague principle of religiosity, some kind of civic religion. What does it mean to actually follow Christ and ultimately to follow Christ to a position of sacrifice or martyrdom or to the cross? What could have been thought an almost naive belief, following Christ's footsteps and live for others and, and so on. Stephen Plant, um, can you give us a track through... Bonhoeffer's resistance to the Nazis in the 1930s. I can. He he went through several phases, really. In the initial phase, he was very busy campaigning, like like one might for you know a political party. Um, so he was uh, organising campaigns, election leaflets, supporting um, those who were standing for election for, for the Confessing Church, and so on. It's important to say that he though that he he always felt instinctively right from the very beginning from from early 1933 that this phase of the church struggle would not succeed he felt that the confessing church didn't actually have the resources of leadership to sustain opposition to the state and he also thought that opposing nazism was an almost impossible task when the state has at its, at its disposal um, brown shirt bully boys to duff up any clergyman who opposes them. Uh, they have extrajudicial internment in Dachau concentration camp. It, you can't resist a state for long like that. So Bonhoeffer always felt that what what the church would have to do was to have sort of I don't know um, Christian special forces, if you like, kind of small monastic communities, dedicated confessing clergy, who would form the nucleus of groups of Christian prepared to stand up to the Nazis by pr protecting, particularly by protecting the vulnerable, um, and he, as he puts it in one letter, to the point of shedding blood, by which he means not killing others, but by being prepared to be killed, to stand in, to defend the most vulnerable in society. Stand in the place of the victim. Yeah, that, that, that idea is, is a strong one right from his PhD thesis all the way through to the, the ethics. I can say a little bit more about that if you like. But um, he, he essentially thought that um, one had an obligation to take the place of another and to suffer in their place. And he characterised this, as Tom was saying, um, through his understanding of the way in which the Christian is formed 
as uh, a sort of like you might form yourself conform yourself to a character in a story you you conform your life to the life and person of christ and that meant being prepared to suffer for the sake of the other and she's still tracking through so he's 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 weaving his own way through what he he's very conscious of being a marginalized increasingly irrelevant yeah. and perhaps potentially irrelevant well this comes uh, to a head particularly in 1939 when um uh knowing that he is in serious trouble with the state he can no longer speak publicly he can no longer publish he's not even allowed to visit Berlin without uh, unless he gives notice to the Gestapo first and can't attend meetings of more than three people so his all his avenues of opposition have been closed down and at this point he's invited by friends in America can I ask to the United States sorry can I ask Alan to take up that story so he goes to the United States and he decides that he can't in fact stay in the United States he's only there for a very short time what's a very short time um a month hardly um, and in July 1939, he decides to get back on a boat and go back to Germany. And we have a letter that he writes to Reinhold Niebuhr, who had helped organise his stay in the United States, about why he feels he has to go home. And it links very closely to what Stephen has just been saying, because in this letter, Bonhoeffer writes that he feels he won't be able to participate in the reconstruction of the church in Germany if he doesn't suffer through the war years with his compatriots. So there's this willingness, almost desire to suffer with other people, alongside other people, to sort of be able to participate in what happens next. And his tutor, to a certain extent his mentor, Bart, urges him vividly to come back to Germany. Mm -hmm, yeah. And regrets having done that ever after. Yeah, yeah. But something else that comes up in this decision to go back, as well as being encouraged in both directions, a lot of his American colleagues and friends are encouraging him vociferously to stay safely in the United States at the same time. But something else that comes up in this letter is that he says that he knows that people in Germany are going to have to decide whether they desire the defeat of their own nation so that what he calls Christian civilization can survive, or whether they have to desire the victory of their nation, knowing that then Christian civilization will cease to exist. And Bonhoeffer says, I know which way I have to make that call, but I can't, in all consciousness, in all conscience, I can't make that call in security. What, Tom Gregg, what took him into, how did he, and why did he want to go into military intelligence, and what, what function did that play in his, uh, his character and uh, work? So in, in part it is... Um, what date are we talking about now? 1939-40? Well, 1938 he makes his initial reaches, yeah. reach out. 1939 he enters into service directly in that context. Um, Bonhoeffer was very concerned that, um, well, for a range of reasons, that the state be opposed. One was that he thought that this would afford opportunity to be involved in with a group of people, including people like um, Schindler, for example, in supporting Jewish people to escape from, from the Nazi state. So he was directly involved in smuggling Jews out of Germany, producing fake, fake documentation on the grounds that they were working for the state to smuggle them out. But he also becomes involved with a group called that are nicknamed the Schwarzer Kapelle, the, um, uh, the Black Orchestra, they're called by the Gestapo, who are very nervous of them as a group. 
um, who are trying to bring down the German state from within. They're, they're effectively people in significant military intelligence roles that recognise how dangerous Hitler is and are involved famously in the assassination plots and uh, as well as that though in reaching out to the allied powers so that should they assassinate hitler there was opportunity to negotiate and engage with allied powers as well i'm not quite sure how what he thinks he's doing in military intelligence it seems such a, we've had the course well charted and now all of a sudden he's in military intelligence did he go there with a purpose did he go there to hide what? It's, it's not to hide. He gets to the point where he recognises that actually in this situation of, ter of a tyrannical overlord that actually there might be justification for tyrannicide. He in fact shocks people in New York just before he returns by asking them if they would grant absolution to somebody who said that they had murdered a tyrant. So he believes that because the state has so overstepped its authority, because Hitler is so evil, that um, it might be necessary, in fact he says famously that it might be necessary to do evil rather than to be evil, that he wants, he realises the limitations of the church struggle and therefore wants to be involved more directly and what he can offer in that is the capacity effectively to be a courier to people uh, in the Allied powers through the ecumenical relations that he has. So he travels, he's someone that passes messages on, he gets messages back to the British government, in fact, because he's anxious about a situation where if Hitler were to be assassinated, Germany might be subject to the same kinds of conditions that they were at Versailles, and that might lead to another Führer. It's, it's worth, I think, adding that the people with whom he, as it were, were co-conspirators... Um, had a lot in common with him in terms of their family and class backgrounds. They were well-educated Germans um, and held to the same value system. So they might not have been Christians as such, necessarily, but they shared the same class. They had a certain amount of trust, a certain amount of cultural affinity. And that also, by the way, um, uh, takes us into a, a quite a difficult thing about Bonhoeff, which is that he, he's not, in fact, in favour very much of democracy. This particular group in which military intelligence was involved, wanted to establish something called a Reichstadt, a legal state with a strong hand of government that could take a strong hand with the German people, not restore press freedom, uh, not introduce enormous freedoms of speech, but keep a firm hand on the German population, at least for a number of years, possibly even decades. And Bonhoeffer felt that that was the only sort of... He was wrong, I think, about this, um, as, it, as was proved by the, the success of the Federal Republic, but he didn't think Germans could stand democracy because of his own experience of the failure of democracy in the Weimar Republic. So what he's working for is a military coup that will lead to a military-led government and not the restoration of democracy, which he felt quite sceptical about. And he was arrested for this and put in prison, but it was rather, he was given rather a soft ride. His, one of his... Um, uh, cousins or a military man came and offered him champagne with an open door in the prison and everybody thought oh he's okay he's, he's one of them as it were so they left him and he wrote he began to write quite quite a lot there then about a year afterwards 1944 he became associated with the uh, conspiracy to kill Hitler what part did he play in that he had a pastoral role more than anything else in that he was a reference person, if you like, for people who wondered whether this was the right thing to do to take part in the conspiracy to, to kill Hitler. So he was, I want to say, almost an ethical reference point for that group. 
he was prepared to do something much more active should the need arise. It's thought that there might have been as many as 10 to 15 plots to assassinate Hitler over the years, in fact. So although we know famously about the plots that happened in 43 and 44, this group within the Abwehr had, in all kinds of different contexts, been the attempting... being the military intelligence. Being the military intelligence. This small group inside working from within to bring it down had attempted to assassinate Hitler on a number of occasions. And Bonhoeffer um, considers all kinds of different avenues in relation to this. He takes very seriously what it means for him as a pastor to be involved effectively in, in blessing somebody to kill themselves and kill Hitler at the same time. Uh, and he struggles with that. Uh, he thinks in the end, and there's a very fascinating part of his ethics where he says that actually the Christian might be called to take the guilt of the world upon themselves, actually to do something which is wrong, but be prepared to do that and suffer the guilt and consequences for it, for what is ultimately right in the end. In prison, uh, and he began to write. What did he begin to write? Well, he'd been writing before. He published books, two or three books and so on. But he began to write something which became very important for his future reputation. Letters to his... Mm -hmm. You tell me. He writes a variety of different literary texts, poetry, fiction. He starts writing a play, but he's most well-known from this period for his letters to his friend and former student, Eberhard Bittger. And in these letters, he's developing the theological ideas that are going round and round in his head while he's in his prison cell. And so... Perhaps most importantly, he develops this idea that we've already referenced the world come of age, which means that humanity, says Bonhoeffer, has reached a point of maturity where we don't need God anymore. We don't need God to answer our questions or to rush in and save us when we don't know what to do any longer. So this role of God as a deus ex machina no longer is valid. However, that doesn't mean that God is absent at all, but that God is in human existence in a new way and Bonhoeffer talks a lot in this part of his writing about a suffering God and a weak God who suffers alongside humanity and who calls humanity to suffer alongside him in the world and from this idea of the world come of age he also develops this idea of religionless Christianity which is perhaps his most famous idea from this period and he thinks that after the end of the war People won't really be interested in an institutional church. They've seen how the church has been hijacked by the Nazi party and they won't want to have anything more to do with it. And so Bonhoeffer suggests in one of his letters that the way that Christians will be able to be Christians in this post-war world will be to pray, meet privately to pray, but not expect to have any public space given to them for that. And to also, he says, to do justice in the world. So a sort of private religious life linked with public action. Tom, can you tell us how he he was he wrote in this particular prison, and then it was discovered he was associated with um, the assassination of Hitler, and he was moved to far tougher prison, and then to a concentration camp, and a final concentration camp where he met his death. How did that happen? So following the um, Wolf's Lair plot, the famous plot that everybody knows about to assassinate Hitler, documents were found which implicated Bonhoeffer and several other conspirators. Um, that's at the point at which his letters and his writing ends as he's transferred, as you say, to a high-security Gestapo prison. And then from there, uh, when the diary uh, of Admiral Canaris, who is the head of the uh, Abwehr, the head of military intelligence, is found, um, as, a re- as a result of that, Bonhoeffer's absolutely implicated. 
and in Flossenburg he is tried um, at night in a laundry um, he's court-martialed and sentenced to be hanged the next morning although there's some question about the um, reality, the account of this the next morning he knelt and prayed quietly and then is meant to have met his end with tremendous dignity despite having been hanged with Canaris and other fellow conspirators by the neck on a meat hook probably with piano wire and probably took a long time for him to die Stephen Plant he wasn't thought of as a great theologian in the 20th century and his ideas took quite a while quite a while dozen or so years to percolate into the into the later 20th century how did they reach a wider audience so for the first 20 years or so he, he was mainly spiritual writing people thought of him as a spiritual writer and then Eberhard Baker this friend began producing posthumous publications of bigger theological works and this launched him in the public consciousness the letters from prison particularly um, in England, a chap called Bishop Robinson, J.A.T. Robinson, who was a, a very well-known public figure... Honest to God. ...wrote Honest to God, about a third of which deals with Bonhoeffer. And that um, rather poor, as it happens, reading of Bonhoeffer, um, sold a million copies in three years, and that became a, a major launch pad for his reputation in the English-speaking world. Can you briefly summarise, the three of you, uh, where his legacy is now, what impact he has had and continues to have? I think people are wary of him still to a certain extent because of his link to the Death of God movement in the 60s, although that has passed now, but that did taint his reputation somewhat, that the people in the theological movement that were saying that God is dead used some of Bonhoeffer's ideas, not the whole of his ideas, but used some of his ideas to justify their stance, which made him a bit suspect for a number of years. He's been written about by a wide variety of different people who have drawn radically different conclusions from his work about what he was trying to say. So he's a very... Um, he's, he's created a lot of confrontational writing in the present day for people trying to interpret him in different ways. Tom Greggs. I think two ideas principally have captivated people's imagination. One is the idea of religionless Christianity, that is... British society and Western society has become more secularised. Uh, Bonhoeffer's prophetic um, expression of a Christianity that isn't religious has been uh, an idea that's captured lots of theological imaginations. And then I think secondly, he, his influence is felt because of the link between his life and work, particularly that work Discipleship, where he talks about the cost of what it might mean to be a Christian. And, and that linked with the ethics where we see the sense of the way in which it's complex to work out what the life of discipleship might be, especially in a context of, of resistance, but also in a context of normal, worldly, secular life. I, I think those two things together, religionless Christianity and the idea of discipleship, really have captured people. Finally, Stephen. And I think it's also helped that the last things he wrote were never finished and were fragmentary, which has meant that people have been able to um, transcribe onto Bonhoeffer's thought some of their own thinking. So he's proved a particularly flexible uh, resource for contemporary theology. Well, thank you very much, Stephen Plant, Eleanor McLaughlin and Tom Greggs. If you've had a topic for us and you think it deserves a big radio audience, please send your ideas through. It's a time on website or Twitter using the hashtag IOT Listener Week by the 26th of October. One of these will be the subject of our programme on the 6th of December. Next week, we're discussing Edith Wharton and her novels, including the novel The Age of Innocence, for which you won the Pulitzer Prize. Thank you very much for listening. 
And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. One, th- one thing I think we've probably not done justice to is his friendship with Eberhard Baker, who we've mentioned a couple of times. Baker began as his student and then became his assistant and was Bonhoeffer's closest relationship other than that with his family. Um, he, he later became engaged to somebody called Maria von Wedemeyer. But I think his closest relationship was that with Eberhard Baker, who became something of a Boswell to, uh, uh, to Bonhoeffer as Johnson. I'm pretty sure that without Baker's efforts, we wouldn't be talking about Bonhoeffer today. In other words, the friendship that Baker had for Bonhoeffer meant that he dedicated most of his working life to putting Bonhoeffer on the map. And actually, that's not a bad tribute, because friendship is a key theme in Bonhoeffer's thought. And it's no bad thing that he's put on the map by those who were his friends. I think that's something that's worth saying. I think it's maybe worth saying a little bit more about the the death and some of the um, dispute around it. Um, almost immediately, Bonhoeffer's um, death was being utilised politically. Uh, the, in fact, one of the main sources that we have that recounts what happened is from the camp doctor, who was the person that certified him dead. Uh, and he paints this almost angelic image of Bonhoeffer dying. It seems to be, to me, to accord with the man that actually there would have been tremendous dignity, that the influence of Nietzsche through his brothers and his father on Bonhoeffer meant that he really disliked the idea of religion being some weak crutch that people utilised. Uh, but it may well be that you know Bonhoeffer th- being strangled was took about two hours to die because it seems like he went to the crematorium about two hours after he was led out to be hanged the only real explanation for that in the context would have been that that was the case and it's very sad when we think that two weeks later Flossenberg was liberated in fact by the allied forces three weeks later Hitler himself um, had committed suicide but it was on Hitler's direct order that these co-conspirators were all executed it's one of the kind of final acts of the Nazi state but then immediately the doctor involved starts to try to justify his own roles in it by painting this picture of a, a of a very saintly death and downplaying actually the atrocity that it that it involved. I think something that's also worth mentioning is just the variety of texts that Bonhoeffer produced while he was in prison, and in particular the fiction. Because in the fiction, he's depicting the types of questions that he's later going to articulate in his letters to Bittger. But he has his characters discuss these same questions. So he has his characters discuss, you know, the future of society. What will Germany look like after the war? Will we have a democracy or would that be a bad thing? Should we encourage people to think of themselves as some of them as leaders and some of them as followers? Would that be a better way to structure society? And so throughout his fiction, he's talking through with his characters all these ideas that are going to become some of his most famous ideas in the letters. And in particular, the last piece of fiction that he writes, very oddly for any text by Bonhoeffer, doesn't contain any reference to the church or to Christ or to religion or anything. And this seems to be his effort at writing for a world come of age, for a world in which all these references to religious words just don't mean anything to anybody anymore. So he's really trying to write a text about Christ. One of the characters is obviously meant to represent Christ, 
but told in a way with no religious language that he thinks would fit into the lives of people in this world come of age. I think all that all that material is really really stimulating. The bit of Bonhoeffer I think that I wouldn't want to accept is this idea of a, an authoritarian regime, and it's tempting to think that um, people who saw that Nazism was evil had a choice between two extreme possibilities, either to cooperate with Nazism or to participate in an assassination attempt. In fact, there were other alternatives. There was somebody else who was associated with the Abwehr, a man called Helmut, uh, uh, Helmut James von Moltke, and he also had a resistance circle. But their modus operandi, their way of working, was to think clearly about what should come next. They did not believe the right thing to do was to assassinate Hitler, and they thought that the war would just have to end with the destruction of the old Germany. And they wanted to think about what it would look like. And in fact, it's the Kreisau circle whose thinking really guides what then becomes the case in the Federal Republic, a pro-European federal structure with diffused power from to the, from the centre to the regions, um, uh, pro-Europeans, as said, with strong trade union involvement. All those are derived from a template that Kreisau and his colleagues design. So I, I, I'm, you know, I, for myself, I don't think Bonhoeffer's decision to participate in the assassination attempt with hindsight, and of course that's important to say, hindsight can reveal all sorts of things. With hindsight, I'm not sure he took the right decision. Finally, Tom. <coughs> Tom. I think as well, one of the dangers that we have when we read the life of somebody like Bonhoeffer is that we automatically think of them as a martyr figure and as a saint-like figure and it's very easy in the course of a conversation to talk about his churchmanship and his faith and the difficulties of his ethical decisions I, I mean Bonhoeffer was also an extraordinarily worldly person that for me is one of the things that I find most attractive about him he considered becoming a professional pianist but didn't pursue that because he said his fingers were too fat but the whole of his life he loved music he loved jazz music he loved long walks uh, he had great friendships and what you see in Bonhoeffer is a glimpse of a life lived in complexity in extraordinarily complex times but trying to be true to the faith that he saw as being the determining feature of everything he did well, thank you very much yet again. And the producer is coming in. Only to offer you tea and coffee. In Our Time with Melvin Bragg is produced by Simon Tillotson. Have you suffered from a horrible trauma? Is it affecting your day-to-day life? If you suffer from PTSD, you can try our new pill, Reset. From BBC Radio 4. You are the ten individuals taking part in the phase one trial of our new drug. Better pill. It doesn't cure PTSD, quite the opposite. An audio drama series. What was that? It's okay, Mary. What happened? You're in the lab. Where's Carl? Carl? He's in the hospital. Available on BBC Science.